0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for meta-modern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, psychedelics, tantra, Dzogchen, Picard, awakening, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking once again with my good friend and teacher, Shinzen Yang. Shinzen Yang is an American mindfulness teacher and neuroscience research consultant, his systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation, known as Unified Mindfulness, has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont in the burgeoning field of contemplative neuroscience. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call "Non-Dual Teachings of Linji with Shinzen Young.
1: So, what we are doing in China is presenting a science-informed, socialism-friendly form of modern Buddhist practice. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And it's very well-received. And I think it's precisely because it does not have to Have some sort of big social network. It's skills that you cultivate, and we can provide you the training. And China is very set up with their internet for these kinds of useful things to spread very quickly. So everyone can see where it comes from. It comes from Buddhism, but it's not religion. It's completely science-informed thoroughly, but it's industrial strength. And by it, I mean the way we're presenting mindfulness there with the unified mindfulness system. And people can see that it can work with a socialist ethos that is what's encouraged there.
0: And are you calling it unified mindfulness?
1: We call it... Kantingan Shijian Tixi Shijian shi means a practice system, and Kantingan means see, hear, feel. So it's the see, hear, feel practice system. Very tangible. Yes. Even a kid can understand. And in fact, we even have a version of a kid's song. It's that song you hear all over Asia. da 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 da. Sure. It's from the U.S. originally. And if you're
0: happy and you know it, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's shiawase narate tatako. It got translated into Japanese, and then from there into China. Well, I have a version of that where it says, well, I can't say it in English, but it's, if you want to be happy right now, see, here, feel. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so this will be delivered mainly over the internet.
1: Well, at this point, because of COVID, I had been planning to have two living situations, one here in Tucson for my job at the University of Arizona with our science research. And then I wanted to have an apartment in Shenzhen, which is China's Silicon Valley city that was started to be the model for the new China. When they opened up in the 80s, Deng Xiaoping and so forth, opened China, this whole society changed. And so that city was built at that time to represent that. It's the most forward-looking part of China. So just north of Hong Kong, you can walk into Hong Kong. So we were going to set up there and I was going to get serious about my spoken Chinese and start to appear on TV and stuff like that, talking about this stuff. But for better or worse, COVID makes that impossible. So we do it over the internet, and it's working out fine. The good side on that, because I'm not in China, the uh, adventure of how we bring these practices back, (laughs) that's forced me to focus all my attention on the other great adventure that I'm entering into now, which is the science research at our lab. So the metaphor I use in my own mind, since I have to isolate a lot my demographic and such, you know, getting up there in the years. So it's like I'm remembering, well, Newton had to flee the plague, get out of London for a while, go out in the countryside. and
0: Invent calculus while he was waiting around.
1: Yeah, he, you know, had some great ideas (laughs) while, while he was waiting around for the pandemic, so to speak, to clear. So, all day, every day, now for quite a while, I have been very much on the science work. And what can I say? We're getting very promising results with ultrasound, much more than I would have expected. And frankly, people are noticing, and we're getting nice support. So it's turned into, uh, it's cinematic. God save the best for last. I'm living this dream I'm in a sci-fi movie, except I get to create (laughs) the (laughs) (laughs) sci-fi.
0: Now, with the science research, last time we talked, you had moved away, at least temporarily, from the basal ganglia, and you were working with various nodes in the default mode network like the PCC and the medial prefrontal cortex, and playing with those, I say playing, but experimenting with those, is that still where you're mainly focusing your research, or or what's the current
1: hotspot? Actually, just about every place in the brain is of interest to us, and is probably going to turn out to be amenable to ultrasonic neuromodulation. In other wow. words, the whole field is opening up. It's not just our lab, the SEMILAB at the University of Arizona. We call it sonication-enhanced mindfulness acquisition and application. Now, if we ever use other neuromodalities, we'll say it's science-enhanced, so the S still works. But it's not just lab. It's our friends at UCLA and Harvard and ASU, and I don't want to leave anyone out, but the whole field is really taking off. It looks like, so far, it's not only safe, but cross your fingers on that. I don't want to <laughs> speak too soon, because safety is, oh my God, but So far, wow, we're doing a lot of stuff, different labs, and doesn't seem to be hurting people. But the thing with the ultrasound is it gives us this enormous precision in terms of location. You can hit any target with any kind of energy pattern you want, you know, within the safety parameters. Now, you couple that with real-time EEG... Well, the EEG is very good for temporal resolution. So if you can track temporal changes with EEG and then you trigger ultrasound, you've got a closed-loop system. And I would not be surprised, based on what we're seeing in the literature as it's coming out now, this is all newly minted science as we speak. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are useful effects just about anywhere in the brain, because it may enhance neuroplasticity in general. Oh my God, if that's the case. Long-term potentiation, there's some indication that might help for that. It's being used for Alzheimer's at UCLA. I'm trying to remember where they're targeting. It might have been the insular cortex, but I I could have that wrong. I know at UCLA they're targeting the anterior nucleus of the thalamus in order to wake up coma patients. Wow. And yes, I mentioned Alzheimer. I mean, treat it. And of course, we're interested primarily in facilitating mindfulness. One way we found we can do that is what you mentioned through down-regulating the posterior cingulate cortex, and that is being replicated and the effects are quite strong. We'll still be interested in the basal ganglia and still do that sometimes because Our earlier pilot exploration with that did show promise, but we're also interested, like I say, in some of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the insular cortex. They're treating anxiety by going into the amygdala at UCLA. These are our colleagues. We work with them, collaborate on this research. So we... Have been very successful in inducing equanimity in non-meditators with ultrasound to the PCc. Presumably, we'll follow up later on with the basal ganglia hypothesis that's based on Atihmorphic syndrome that I've talked a lot about in the past. So we are going to follow up on that. But basically. Every place now is potentially something that could be ultrasonically neuromodulated. And when we start delivering sophisticated space-time modulated energy in the ultrasound to the brain, we may be able to not just induce profound equanimity, which is sort of the centerpiece for liberation.
0: When you say just, I'm like
1: <laughs> like okay, that's the centerpiece for liberation, what more? Well, a paper just came out that's pretty exciting. That's called theta burst protocol. It started in TMS, but this was the first time they did it in ultrasound and it really had a profound effect and this seems to be related to long-term potentiation, in other words, helping Learning now, it's at a primitive level at this point, but we're getting set up in our lab to do exactly that same protocol. So, not only are we perhaps able to help people with what's sort of the centerpiece for the spiritual practice, but we may be able to help people in general learn. So, wow. Uh, it's exciting times. It's also scary times because when you work with this stuff, you realize there's potential for misuse, abuse, so makes things interesting.
0: That's all really amazing, and I can't wait to hear more about what you're doing as the year's progress here. It just keeps getting more and more interesting. Every time I check in with you about it, it's, uh-huh. it's gone to the next level. So cool. You know, today I wanted to talk to you about something that I think our friend Elizabeth Pugh got me aware of, which is that you were giving a talk about, I think it's Rinzai, but of course, however you pronounce Lin in Chinese if I'm not mistaken, his teachings on non-duality, something that you had long ago talked to me about for a paper I was writing at the time about non-duality, right? And it was a famous formulation of four different ways of looking at this. But she had very excitedly said that you had given quite a large teaching on it. And so I got excited and wanted to see if you were willing to unpack some of that for me and also everyone else listening.
1: Well, that would be delightful. Awesome. So, maybe I'll just give a little bit of background. The teacher that we're referring to is called Rinzai in Japanese, R-I-N-Z-A-I, so Zen Master Rinzai, Rinzai Zenji in Japanese. The Chinese pronunciation for that name is Linji, L I N J I, with a rising tone and then a falling tone on the two syllables Linji. Linji was the name of the temple where he lived. Koreans call him Imje, maybe you'd see it, I M J-E, something like that, M J, And in Vietnam, it's pronounced Lam-Dae. Just for the record, these all refer to the same person and the same lineage of practice. It started in China and spread to the cultures strongly influenced by China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam. Lin Qi lived in the Tang Dynasty towards the end of the Tang Dynasty. Tang Dynasty was one of the long and great dynasties of Chinese history, but like many of them, towards the end, things got ugly, and Lin Qi lived during those times. So, in some ways, it's someone that maybe People living in our age can relate to. It's like confusing times of trouble. Buddhism was, for one thing, persecuted by one of the emperors, and there were rebellions. He actually references those, and there were invasions into China, Chinese territory, and so forth. So he lived in troubling times. He also has another. Feature that I think modern people can relate to. One of the things I've noticed over the years as a mindfulness teacher is that people lack self confidence. You probably have noticed this yourself, Michael, that they tend to assume they're doing something wrong or they're doing the technique wrong or they're not. Getting what they're supposed to be getting, or there's something wrong with them. You know what I'm talking about? Have you noticed that tendency?
0: It's absolutely the most common feature that people tend to assume they're doing it wrong.
1: So, this guy that lived roughly a thousand years ago and half a world away in China, he talks about his early experiences before he had his awakenings, how he lacked. Faith in himself. Zixin is still the modern Chinese word for confidence, but it literally means having faith in yourself. Zixin. And how he had no faith in himself, in who he was, or his capacity to achieve anything, even though he had achieved quite a bit of fame as a monastic scholar he could give lectures and so forth on the scriptures and on the philosophical commentaries on the scriptures but it was not backed up by any kind of personal experience he was an academic and successful in that regard but he didn't have faith in himself and he talks about that so you know, a person living in confusing times and sort of confused about themselves. Sounds like a lot of people I know.
0: <laughs> we could relate, yeah.
1: It <laughs> also very much is reminiscent of T.S. Eliot, my favorite mm. poet, you know, The Wasteland, this whole critique of, well, they say Western, but maybe. Broadly, the modern world, how vapid and hopeless people are. <laughs> Basically, you know, it starts with proof rock, right? Yes. It's like this is the monologue, the soliloquy of a person that's very intelligent, very creative, but very confused and without any direction or anchoring or alignment in his stories, just a lot of interesting pieces, and that gives you that cubist effect in the Eliot poetry. You know, it's all fractured. So, you know, we talk about Chan or Zen, it's from another part of the world, it's from another era, but humans are humans, right? So, when I think of Lin-Chi, I think of a confused person living in confusing times, Mm. And, you know, welcome to his world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very relatable.
1: Yeah. When he finally did have his breakthroughs, they came famously at the hands of a master, Huang Po, who whacked him with a stick. Now you can imagine, the poor guy already lacks self-confidence. The story is he goes to the master And he asks, what's the essence of the practice? Something to that effect. You know, what's the essence of the whole thing? And the teacher hits him. (laughs) And he doesn't know what that's all about. So he obviously assumes it's his fault. He asked the wrong question or there's something wrong with him. It's like the worst medicine you could give someone who already lacks self-confidence. And this actually happens two more times. And at that point, he's completely at the end of his rope, and he says, I think I have to leave and go somewhere else. And someone advises him, saying, don't go anywhere else, go see Da Yu, who was this other master. And he has an interaction with the other master. and a sudden awakening. And essentially, he goes back and threatens to beat up Huang Po. And Huang Po just laughs and is delighted. (laughs) It's a famous story. So, what's all this violence about? Well, I myself have actually had, on more than one occasion, the experience of being struck by one of these masters.
0: With a Kyosaku or something more uh, formidable?
1: No, you know, when you go in for an interview, they have a short bamboo object that they hold that is a symbol of the dignity and whatever, but Mm. they can hit you with it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And that has happened to me, and not just that, but the verbal equivalent of that has happened to me. And it's really quite a tour de force, I would say. Only really liberated people can do this. And even really liberated people can make mistakes with this that have harmful effects, to be honest. But the this that I'm talking about is to manifest anger, rage, but you're just manifesting it you're not actually caught in it. But it can be quite uninhibited in its external expression. But there's no gap in the fundamental love relationship. And at that moment, the master is just emptiness. It's just wind. It's strong, but without substance. And a human being who's highly liberated. They can do that on occasion. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea, though. (laughs) But it's a style, and it is an attainment. I mean, you can play at that. People pretend to do Zen combat or Dharma combat, whatever. And that's fine. That's practice. But to actually do what I just described, to be an empty expression of an activity, and you're still really coming from love, even though you're like chewing someone up or beating them (laughs) with a stick. This is from an older culture, let's say. (laughs) It's quaint to talk about. It's probably... Not such a good idea for the modern world.
0: In your own experience of that, Shenzhen, how did that affect you or how did you take it?
1: Well, at that time, I had more confidence in myself than Lin Ji did. So I understood exactly what the teacher was manifesting. And it was just like getting rolfing for the subtle body. <laughs> It was just like a massage that sort of smoothed me out. But Lin Ji was less experienced in meditation than me, you know, when he received that. So it was, I guess, pretty devastating, but somehow it all worked out because when he went to see that other master, the other master was able to show him what Huang Po, the original master. Was manifesting. So it is different. It has a different energy. And if you know what to look for, then it has a positive effect on you. But the problem is it's like one Zen master said, but then didn't take his own advice you don't hit children. So if a student is not robust enough in their practice, and experienced enough to know that it's really emptiness that's whacking them, then they're a child, and it's actually going to hurt them. And I've seen that happen in the real world. But in any event, in these stories, it works out. (laughs) (laughs) So in this story, I'm assuming that Dayu, the second master he went to, showed him in some way the activity of emptiness that was Huang Po's seeming violence. And Lin Ji was able to see it, and he got it. He didn't just get it perceptually, he actually got it motorically. And he was able to go back and be that activity of emptiness threatening to strike the master who had struck him. And of course, the master, being the master, immediately sees, oh, he's got it. So, one of the famous appreciations of Lin Ji that some other masters later on expressed was the phrase, no sooner did he see it, but he could use it. So, the activity of emptiness, which I like to think of in terms of effortless expansion and contraction, that activity presents itself as a just-happeningness in our perceptions of see, hear, feel. But it also manifests as a just-happeningness in Our expression, what we have control over, or what we can yield control to nature when we think and speak and move and so forth. The threefold karma.
0: And so, this is what you mean when you say motorically.
1: Yes. Yeah, in the bodily expression. So, the same just happeningness appears as impermanence or emptiness in both the perception gates and the action gates. Traditional action gates are thought, speech, and bodily actions. So, Chan or Zen is very dynamic. It likes people not only to experience the effortlessness and connectivity in what we see, hear, and feel on the inside and outside, but also to experience that in how we express ourselves, how we work or play or even think. When thinking becomes spontaneous, then you know, Michael, from your own experience, that's the wisdom function. So, in any event, this is a little bit of the background on Linji, how he went from being very confused about himself to, rather quickly and suddenly, it doesn't always happen that way, but at least in this story, he grew up really fast and became a famous master. So, he is known for a number of rather shocking statements that have found their way in Asian anime, for example, in (laughs) cartoons and in movies. Some of the crazy stuff he said, like, when you meet the Buddha on the path, kill the Buddha. (laughs) So that was made into some sort of sword man thing, you know, in a cartoon or a movie. So in Asia, some of his stranger pronouncements are known in the mass media. But of all the things that he said, and despite the fact that he's known for his sort of eccentric and intuitive approach to things, of all the things he has said, the one thing that I found closest to my personal experience and very useful in working with students, is something he calls the fourfold analysis. And I think that's what you're talking about. Is that correct? You're asking me about that? Yes, I am. Okay. So, recall he didn't have faith in himself. And then he had an experience that Everything that he sees, hears, feels, all the thoughts, the speech, the bodily movements, all of that arises from and returns to a kind of effortless activity, a pure doing at the core of consciousness that, like an invisible puppeteer, it's like the hands of an invisible puppeteer animating he experienced that original okayness that we all have. Heraclitus said we all have the same logos, the same principle. Why is it then that people get lost in their personal stories? That's the Western version of this. So, for Lin it made sense to call that activity The authentic person. Now, that's really interesting because the whole point in Buddhism, and Lin would have known this very well as a scholar of the scriptures, the whole point in Buddhism is there is no self. Now, he's calling that no self the authentic person, zhenran very simple words in Chinese. zhan means a person. Chan means authentic, the authentic person. It is the opposite on the surface of what Buddhism says, but true self, no self, doesn't matter what you call it. What does matter is you experience it, and then you stabilize that experience into ordinary life, And then you refine yourself and serve the world based on contact with that. That's the path. So call it true self, call it no self. He called it who I really am the authentic doing that is this person. And then he uses that to describe. The types of experience that people have, and by people I mean two kinds of people, people with a lot of practice that are aware of the kinds of experiences they're having with great clarity, and everyone else that is having those experiences but not so clear about the components. Now, Michael, you mentioned non-dual. I'm not aware of Linji actually using that expression, although there is a term in Chinese Buddhism, ru ar to enter non-dual. So,
0: Yeah, from the Vimalakirti
1: Nirdesha Sutra. Mm -hmm. Sutra, Exactly. So, such a term does exist. But for me, Lin Ji's fourfold analysis, based on this rather idiosyncratic way of talking about a person, Wu Wei Zhen Ren, the authentic person with no fixed position, just four characters in Chinese, this is a very creative and dynamic way of thinking about liberation. But where the non-dual comes in is actually, in my mind, me, Shenzhen, it occurred to me that his fourfold analysis could be thought of as maybe the most mature way to formulate, quote, non-dual philosophy in the field of actual contemplative experience. In that, whenever someone brings up non-dual, that phrase in English, I'm of course thinking advaita, it corresponds to a Sanskrit term, and That term has been used in many different contexts, in many different ways. But I always like, in my own mind, when someone uses the phrase non-dual, to start to query, well, non is negating. So there's a dualness that is presumably bad, that is being negated, being dealt with, taken care of. So, good. But my question is always the literal. What one or combination of dualities are we talking about here? Are we talking about the duality between body and mind? The duality between inside and outside? the duality between pleasant and unpleasant. Boy, that's a biggie. The duality between good and evil, the duality between form and formless. That last one seems pretty fundamental. How do you get the one nothing onto a continuum with the ten thousand-somethings of the day and the 10 trillion-somethings of a life, how are all those somethings connected to a one-nothing? That would seem to be quite a deep duality. And if that duality is reconciled, particularly if it's reconciled as you're going about your daily activities, I'm going to say as far as what we might call the liberation slash enlightenment component of this path, you're doing pretty good. Now, that's not the only component on this path. There's also refining yourself and improving your world. And in the end, it's very much about that, but optimized because you've gotten over the self to a certain degree, and you've seen through the world, quite literally, eyes wide open. Ha. The cosmic egg is thoroughly cracked. <laughs> you follow. Yes. <laughs> so I'm the one, I guess, that said, "Wow, well, this fourfold analysis, which we'll get to in a second. We're just sort of laying the groundwork. Well, this is pretty good for that level of non-dual. So what does he say? Well, I think I can even remember it in Chinese. 有时多人不躲静。Liang yoing pretty sure that's what it is in Chinese, so mm. you can even hear perhaps symmetry in the words yo means sometimes <laughs> sometimes 多人不多靜, 多然, snatch away the person there's no Subject uh, on this. It just says, sometimes snatch away person, but not snatch away the scene. Not seen as what I see, but seen as in seen in a movie kind of scene. So sometimes no person, just the scene. So it's perhaps enigmatic, but against the context of the rest of his writings, and perhaps hinted by the story that I told you, what he's saying, when he's saying person, he's talking, I believe, about what in the unified mindfulness system we would call expansion-contraction flow, dominating your experience. So, there's just a sense of effortless, spreading and collapsing that is the taste of now with a capital N. It's also the taste of early processing, both perceptual and expression processing. In its early phase has this effortless just-happeningness. And we have a hypothesis in the lab not confirmed that based on the work of Carl Friston and the free energy principle, that that effortless quality of just-happeningness in the early processing may actually represent spontaneity in the thermodynamic sense of just-happeningness, which is uh, related to free energy and entropy change. So we can even possibly relate this to a real science of enlightenment moving forward, but we're not there yet. That's an aside. In any event, what does it taste like? What I'm guessing is the taste of nature being itself effortlessly just happening. Well, for the practitioner, it evolves into, as I say, this quality of effortless efflux and reflux in the see, hear, feel, think, speak, move. So that's the person for Linji. That's the activity of the authentic person that has no fixed position, comes in and out of you. It's just the wind, nature being itself. Sometimes that, quote, person isn't there. Doran, the person is snatched away. They're not there. And this happens in enlightened people. It happens in unenlightened people. Some people notice it. Some people, they don't. Sometimes the person is not there. And there's only the scene, the inner and outer see, hear, feel. The sense that there's an outer scenery that's the world, an inner scenery that's my thoughts, my emotional body, and broadly, anything in my body, sort of me, the body, mind, world. That's a scene. So, even if you're liberated, and certainly if that's not so much, well sometimes everything's just sort of normal. But then, sometimes, you'll sure snatch away the scene and leave the person, the activity of the source. So, you're so involved in the senses or in the expression, in the perception or in the expression. They're both part of your senses, I would say. You're so sensorially engaged, you're so in the moment, now with a capital N, the now that T.S. Eliot equated with Christ. What are things like? Well, there's just that effortless efflux and reflux. What you called self and world are too busy doing the just happeningness of self and world. So, for liberated people, this is weird because I've said liberated too many times. I'm making duality. God damn it! I apologize <laughs> for that. This is it's, just convenience, folks.
0: Don't. It's it's part of having to speak.
1: Yeah, it's when you talk, you throw golden sand in everyone's eyes. No matter how good your talk is, it's still a little bit toxic. So I'm making it sound like there's this big difference between liberated and everyone else just because we're doing this freaking analysis. But the whole point (laughs) is people don't brag about being liberated because you just realize everyone is. That's what it means to be liberated you realize it's not special. So why would you ever make it special? But anyway, you might end up sounding like you make it special just to try to deliver some conceptual content. So let's continue.
0: And let me just interject here for a moment and say the overall structure of this fourfold analysis, as I understand it, is that we're talking about the duality of self and world, Right? So in any duality, we've got two things. That's what makes it a duality. And so the two things here are the person and the scene or self and world. And so in Lin Chi's formulation, the first line he's saying, and I'll just paraphrase, sometimes the self goes away, but the world remains. And now you're starting on the second one, which is the world goes away, but the person remains. Am I correct, so far?
1: Yeah, that's right. But confusingly, what he's calling the person, he doesn't actually say self in this particular case. In other instances, he does say actually the word self. But here he's saying person. The person is formless, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a formless doing. And then both the inner and outer world, the sight, sound, touch, but image, talk, body, emotion also. So, yes. So, the third possibility is sometimes snatch away both person and world. So, what is that? That is absolute rest. That is the still point of the turning world neither movement from nor towards. How is it that T.S. Eliot puts it? At the still point of the turning world, neither movement from nor towards. No expansion, contraction. At the still point, there the dance is, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Past and future are gathered. Right, left, front, back, up, down, the six directions of space and the two directions of time have fallen to an unextended point that has no position because there's no space-time. Call it cessation, call it shalom bimromav, oseh shalom bimromav, in Hebrew, Hu yaase shalom, may the one who creates The peace of his own heaven bring peace upon you. That's one of the most canonical Jewish blessings. This is shalom bim romav. This is the peace of God's own heaven. All the angels are silent. That's nihil per excellentiam. Nothing par excellence. That's the restful side. And then the dynamic side is the simultaneous expansion-contraction. So he's talking about that as a third possibility. And that also happens. It's mixed in with the other stuff during the day. Sometimes you're just, hey, I'm looking at the walls, I'm feeling my body. It's the same when I was eight years old. I'm almost 80 still looks like the world, it's objectified. But actually, it's different. It looks like brocade. It has the magic of early childhood, always now. But it also has the maturity of a scientist. The world seems to me to reflect Darwinian evolution everywhere what I know about biology, everything is this beautiful arabesque of just the right information for our species. For me, how many billions of years of terrestrial evolution to create the brocade of a human experience. So when it's there, even when it's objectified, it's not the way it was objectified as an adult. It's got the magic Of early childhood, still. So sometimes the inner and outer scene, subjective, objective experience, they're there, objectified, but magic still. And sometimes they go away because you're so in the moment that there's just the dynamics of perception expression. And then when that comes to an end, the peace that passeth understanding, the activity that molds the inner and outer scene goes to a restful state and carries the space-time continuum with it. And by space-time continuum, I obviously mean our perception of space-time, not referring to cosmology or philosophy here, but actual perception. And then The fourth possibility is what most of the day is like, which is a true non dual experience. The form is there, the see, hear, feel, and such, but it's always touched by the expansion and contraction. And the expansion and contraction always touch the timeless, spaceless, whence they come and whither they return. So the form is connected directly to the formless in the ordinary life through this sort of dual umbilical cord of effortless efflux and reflux that Lin-G calls the activity of who we really are. So to me, this is not only a very nice logical way to describe what the liberation slash enlightenment side of this path is about. But it also creates a basis for guiding people with practice. And I think that's another idea that he probably had in mind, that he would use this, he would do things and say things so, sometimes it was him that was snatching away the person or snatching away the scene as the teacher. Now, I don't do that particular style of trying to catch people at you know a particular moment, etc. But in the more sort of formulaic way that we set things up in unified mindfulness, I do use this to Lead people to this very adult form of non-dual experience, and so thanks for giving me the opportunity to explain that.
0: Well, thanks for explaining it, Shinzen. And um, I wanted to ask you a question about the third possibility here, both the scene and the person snatched away, which you used the term cessation there. And of course, this term gets used a lot now. And what I'm noticing is it gets used in different ways, ways that are significantly different. And so I'm curious in the way that you're using it here, or that you believe Lin Chi is using it here, is he talking about complete lights out type cessation, or cessation of all sense gate experience, but still with awareness present?
1: It's difficult to say. And he doesn't even use the word cessation, He just implies it very strongly. There's nothing whatsoever, right? And when they asked him for further detail, he actually used a political metaphor. He referenced a province that had broken away from the central government. Remember I mentioned that they had rebellions and basically civil war, right? So he says something like, bin and fun— which are names of a large region in China, named after some rivers, bin and fan, have broken off relationships. No word, no information can pass. They're on their own now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can't get any messages through.
1: Yeah, they're on their own now, which immediately brings to my mind the Sanskrit expression kevala. Kevala means independent, and it's a synonym for those sort of cessation experiences. You're on your own now. So, we don't know. The best I can do is guess. My guess is that he didn't make a big distinction between touching that kind of thing, say, as you're having a conversation— And touching that kind of thing, say, as you might on a three-month retreat where you're sitting all day and all night. Mm. So it's the same cessation, but the lights out, I can sit for 10 hours, like 10 minutes kind of thing. I don't think that has to be accessible. (laughs) I think that that will eventually become accessible, but also just those smaller crack in the cosmic egg things that happen hundreds of times a day if you know what to look for, to me, they always seem just on a continuum. Mm -hmm. It's like your ability to stabilize contact with something like that is pretty much a function of your equanimity. I mean, basically, the difference between like those little gons that people notice. The difference between that and sitting there for three days without moving kind of gone. One way to think about it is it involves something genetic, and some people have an altered physiology that allows for this. That's one way to think about it. And, of course, the traditional explanation is They did it in a former life, because most people who practice do not have access to, yeah, I can sit here for three days kind of thing, right? Right. So, people that do do that kind of thing, one way to think about it is there may be some genetic proclivity in their physiology that allows for that. People have different ways of sleeping. Who knows? But the other way to think about it is, sooner or later, every practitioner has to do that. If only on your deathbed. I mean, I watched my brother not move for a week at all. He was awake and fully conscious, but he didn't have the energy to move at all. That was one week, zero movement sit to death. So, First of all, we're all going to deal with that level of challenge, if only at the end. So it's relevant. And the second thing is, those levels of like physiologically altered state kind of levels, they are accessible to ordinary practitioners. You just have to get crazy with the equanimity thing. It's mostly a function of equanimity. It's not like somehow you learn to stabilize the source. You learn to equanimize the chaos that comes before everything dissolves into the source. So it's a matter of what you do when your formal meditation becomes uncomfortable, how well you can handle that. The discomfort grows and grows until you start to lose control. And the trick is to throw caution to the wind and let that happen. And then on the other side of that flailing is now habitual access to those profound altered states. So in a sense it doesn't make any difference whether it's the little gawnings or a big, big, big gawning. They're all uncreated equal. And yeah, some people seem to be those rara evas, you know, those rare birds that can just enter these physiological trances. But I'm saying that For us ordinary practitioners, those states are also available so that when life throws a real curveball at you as a practitioner, if it's enough to really knock you off-center and you equanimize that, you will go to a completely different level of okayness in your practice. That's just not like, oh, I'm in a good place with meditation, and I'm sitting here, and this is great. It's like, no, I don't have any control over my mind or body, and why am I smiling? (laughs) Yes. You get this, my friend. Most people would be mystified. But good for you.
0: Thanks, Shenzhen, so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay, well, thanks so much and keep up the great work. What can I say? We're all doing what we need to do here.